Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Not Just Paleo. I'm your host, Evan Brand. Welcome. If you're new to the show, then today is going to blow your mind. Dr. Jack Cruz is a friend of mine and just a really awesome person who's helping hundreds of thousands of people across the world with his work on wireless technology and light exposure and optimizing your mitochondrial health for fat loss, etc., etc. So if you've tried a ketogenic diet, you've tried a paleo diet, and maybe you've not gotten the extreme success that everyone else is talking about, this episode is going to help you understand why that is. And as a functional medicine practitioner myself and a board-certified holistic nutritionist, I take those uh, accolades seriously, and that really does help me get a lot of success with people. But where I take functional medicine, I go above and beyond even functional medicine, and I integrate the strategies about light exposure that we're going to talk about in this show with Jack. So just a forewarning, prepare to get your mind blown. You're going to love it. Don't get overwhelmed. And check out the other episodes because this is about the fourth or fifth appearance that Dr. Cruz has had on my podcast. Super grateful for his time. Enjoy the show. And as always, if you want to schedule that 15-minute free call with myself, chat about your health symptoms, your health goals, see what's going on if we're a good fit for each other, go back to my website, notjustpaleo.com. Here we go. Dr. Jack Cruz, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. Well, we were chatting about your your club, your online club at your website, jackcruz.com. And I was listening to Ben Greenfield's podcast, and Mercola was just giving you all sorts of credit. Apparently, you've just blown Dr. Mercola's mind over the past few months. So that's pretty, that's pretty fun and exciting to know that the tide's turning because – Back when you and I first chatted, when I started this podcast back in 2012, our episode was, I would almost label it controversial, if you will, and it's almost like people weren't ready to hear that diet and fitness weren't the only variables out there. When did that first come apparent to you? Was this 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago? When did you know, look, people are wasting their time? I knew for myself in 2005, 2006. But after doing my own, you know, major biohack back then and then proving it to myself, you have to realize when I when I realized this stuff, I didn't believe it myself um, because it went contrary to everything that I was taught in medicine. So even after it worked on me, then, then I had to do it on my family. So I did it on my son. Then I did it on my nephew. And next thing you know, a lot of my family members started showing up to my house wanting to know what they should do. And then it spilled over into my neurosurgery practice where patients started to take notice of the changes and they were like, this is interesting. So I started to teach them about light, about water and about magnetism, but not in the terms that most people would expect. Like when you go back and, you know, look at the leptin prescription uh, and you read that blog, nothing about that blog makes you think about light. If you go back and read the CT protocol, nothing in that blog makes you think magnetism. And see, that was part of my original design is that I was going to show people slowly and steadily that the single most important thing in all of biology is the physics of organisms. Um, And once you understand the physics of organisms, then you begin to understand how the things that are published in biology books and biochemistry books 
fit into place into the physics of organisms. You know, most people that have a food forward platform or a, uh, a an exercise platform, you know, put biochemistry at the top of the table. And I have told my members very, I mean, very consistently for five years that eventually it will be proven that the surface chemistry of how light interacts with our services, specifically our eye, our skin, our gut, and our lung, will determine how the biochemistry occurs at deeper levels below. You know, and five years ago, that was, um, what, how, I will use, will use your word, controversial. It was never controversial for me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think one of the most ironic parts for me, why I've been so smug in my p- position for a long time so I don't think a lot of the uh, food gurus out there really fundamentally understand that photosynthesis is the basis of the entire food web. And when you begin to understand just that simple fact, you've got to realize that basically light programs all the electrons, all the atoms, and everything that makes this planet up. Let and me ask in- you. Let me ask you this, Jack. Back when we first chatted, I asked you about food, and you wrote about food in your EpiPaleo prescription book, and you've given some recipes and talked about the importance of DHA and all of that. And I asked you about the percentage. I said, Jack, what percent of health is food? And you told me 10%. Do you think Correct. that number is do, – do you stay with 10%? Do you think it's less? Yeah. Do you think it's more? Well, I think I think for most people in the beginning, the answer is yes. And in that, that – uh, 10%, the single most important thing to get right is probably the DHA effect. And the irony is DHA uh, really is a proxy for how light and water and magnetism fundamentally begin to work in cells. So when, when, I, when I think about food, like when you bring that up, the first thing I think about is electrons. Why? Because all food becomes electrons you know, within the mitochondria and within the mitochondria, that's when these electrons get programmed, they get their energy harvested, and then they get reprogrammed in ways that most people don't even appreciate. Now, they know the uh, facade words, like, for example, when you hear a food guru in the paleo world talk about free radicals, you always hear them say the word free radicals. But Evan, have you ever heard anybody tell people what a free radical fundamentally is and actually how we change free radicals? Nope. See, they're made in the cytochromes of proteins. And the reason why they're important, free radicals all have single electrons and those electrons carry spin. And that spin can be the up or down. Well, what's the, the, the big difference in those electrons? Is their spin and the amount of photonic energy that excites that electron. And see that excitation um, as the electron moves across the inner mitochondrial membrane, it's allowed to release that energy at certain places and it can't release it at others. And um, there's, there's some other really interesting things about mitochondria that are truly fundamental and they're also quantized. And those are, those are the kind of things that people who are food first don't understand. For, for example – one of the um, the main researchers that I would tell everybody who listens to this uh, really needs to, you know, put aside 
you know, their paleo solution or their primal blueprint or any of that stuff until you really understand how mitochondria work, because I think it really will open your mind to what you've forgotten. What good is the fuel that you put in a car whose engine is not fuel efficient? And that researcher who's kind of proven that, his name is Doug Wallace. Dr. Doug Wallace, he's at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And he's the gentleman who's probably the world expert right now in mitochondrial medicine. And his work was seminal in showing that all mitochondrial DNA is inherited from the maternal side. Now, that's what he first became famous for. He's way more famous now, at least in the circles that mitochondriacs hang out in. And I can say that I became a mitochondriac about 12 years ago. And Wallace has shown that as the distance between um, respiratory proteins enlarge or change, the way we handle electrons and mitochondria changes. Now, his focus when he first started was on very rare mitochondrial diseases, um, and those diseases really aren't the focus of most people probably listening to your podcast or even the people that, that listen to me talk. But the interesting thing is, is that he started there. That was his genesis point. And he realized at the end that just about every single Neolithic disease that the guys in the paleo world do talk about come from altered uh, mitochondrial function. So in other words, as the distance changes in the inner mitochondrial membrane, Diseases begin to manifest. So let me for pause you there. Yeah, I was going to say, let me pause you there. What what are the most impactful or degrading things to this mitochondrial function? Are we talking environmental toxins? Are we talking things? Everything. Like- just so you know, everything. Look, look, I have a very famous saying with my members, and I'm sitting here laughing as I think about it. There is nothing innately wrong with people. When people get sick, it's because the environment is making them sick. And you have to realize that your mitochondria basically is your sixth sense. It is an environmental sensor that pays attention to all the native signals that you get from the sun, from the earth, um, and it it copies them in water. Water is the ultimate molecular uh, connector that allows all these different disparate waveforms to talk to each other. But what, what, Wallace really found, which was incredible, is and most people in medicine know that you, you, I'm sure everybody that's listening to this has heard that, you know, obesity leads to diabetes and diabetes leads to cancer and cancer can lead, you know, to other diseases like heart disease and things like that. And, you know, that natural progression is pretty well institutionalized in patients' mind and and, and most pe- uh, people's minds when they hear it. But what Wallace showed was that as the percent heteroplasmy in a tissue went up, these diseases manifested without any change in the nuclear genome. And he did exquisite, and I mean exquisite experiments over the last 40 years to really lay this out. And uh, he's gone, I mean, all over the world to talk to people about this, but you have to remember his focus was these crazy mitochondrial diseases that generally tend to be genetic. And he now has publicly said as of 2015 that maybe 10 to 15% of diseases truly have a genetic basis, but 80 to 85% of diseases 
are all mitochondrial based because of a poor environment. And the point that I try to make to people is that when you get one of these diseases, just like let's take my disease that I had 12 years ago, which is obesity. Obesity is basically a phenotypic change that is represented in my mitochondria, meaning that the distance between cytochrome 1 and cytochrome 5, which is the ATPase, is much greater than it used to be. So that means I'm not as energy efficient. So what does the body do in kind? Well, it gets larger to try to offset this energy inefficiency. And see, the mindset in the paleo world, the mindset in the doctor's office, the mindset with most of your listeners is that people who are fat eat too much. And it turns out that's exactly not the case when you understand the thermodynamics of physics. Because, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, as a star dies, it gets bigger too because it becomes energy inefficient. That's the reason why it becomes a red giant. Um, and what we don't realize is when something gets bigger, it's not as, as uh, energy efficient, but it's able to save energy. That's the reason why a mouse has a very fast metabolic rate compared to an elephant. Uh, and it, when you consider how they're built, one is nocturnal, the other one's diurnal. These effects change their retinas in their eye in terms of how they deal with light. It changes the way their mitochondria are set. It even changes their haplotype. And one of the things that I was kind of excited about early on in the paleo world is they were paying attention to um, the 23andMe stuff when everybody was ordering the test. But the thing that really bugged me is that <clears throat> I don't think anybody realized that the mitochondrial haplotype was an important step in really understanding what Wallace was teaching doctors who were paying attention to his work. Jack, let me ask it, you this. Are, are the, the 23andMe, the genetic test, is it really that valuable? Because if you have it's not, a, it's not valuable if you don't know what it means. Well, let me ask you this, because let's just say you have a genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's or, or something else. That's just telling you that the trigger is going to be a light trigger and the gun's loaded. But Correct. Correct. You, I mean, that's one of the, the famous quotes that I've, I've used. But, I, I tell everybody that your genes are just the gun, but... So you what don't really, really need to know bullets. So you don't really need to know your genetics. You just need you still need to be taking the same actions regardless well, and, of and whether I, you I do the say genes. You jumped in and you, you started talking about genes, but you didn't listen to really what I said carefully. Your mitochondrial haplotype is that what's con inside that test that is important. Because the mitochondrial haplotype tells you where your mitochondrial DNA came from. And that puts you as a latitude and, uh, and usually altitude uh, in, on terms of this planet. So, for example, just let's say you have a K-haplotype, which is Northern European, okay? And you happen to place that person, let's say, in Ecuador, okay? What's the main difference between a K-haplotype and, say, an equatorial haplotype? Well, a K-haplotype is loosely coupled. What does that mean? means that you release more energy and you have to eat more calories so you make more heat to keep yourself thermally warm and shrink your mitochondrial proteins. Well, do you really need that kind of mitochondrial haplotype if you live in Ecuador? Because when you're in Ecuador, you're at the equator, you're supposed to be tightly coupled. That's the reason why Kenyans kill races all over the United States. It's the reason why 
they don't have to eat very much and still have maximum performance. See, the energy, their, their Ferrari is built differently than the Ferrari for Northern Europeans. And here's the part that people don't realize. The way the photoreceptors in your eye, the way your retina is built, is designed to marry to your haplotype in your mitochondria. And these are the kind of things that Wallace is bringing out. So, for example, when you sit down and talk to most of, of your followers and you talk about, say, a ketogenic diet versus a high-carb diet versus a high-protein diet, does any of that really matter if you don't know if you're tightly coupled or loosely coupled? The answer is no, it doesn't. So let me ask you this, just just to clear things up. So tightly, that is the that's the Europeans. No, tightly coupled is the people on the equator. Okay, so the loosely is the is the Europeans. So I'm looking at mine right now. Mine's H three. So it, yeah, so you're a Northern European. Yeah, and and that means that what you're going to do is you're always going to have to eat more to make more energy to shrink those respiratory proteins out there. See, when you understand how a mitochondria is built, inside that crista, on the inner mitochondrial membrane, you have those four per, those four cytochromes and then the fifth one's the ATPase. The distance there is designed to be about 35 angstroms. Well, in somebody who lives where you're from, their mitochondrial uh, uh, distances are probably around 45 to 50. And that means that they have to have more electrons per unit time across their inner mitochondrial membrane to make the same energy efficiency as a Kenyan or a Ugandan would or an Ecuadorian would that has an equatorial haplotype. And the reason for that is because as you spread the respiratory proteins, you are going to generate more heat. When you have heat release, that's infrared light from your mitochondria, what does infrared light do, Evan, to the water that's created in a mitochondria during oxidative phosphorylation? Yeah. It shrinks it. Okay. Why? It's very simple. What, it, what happens when you take a can of beer and put it in your fridge or your freezer? It expands the can, right? And this is what people don't understand about water. Water expands when it freezes, but water shrinks when you heat it. And that's the reason why mitochondria make water, and it's also the reason why water surrounds the respiratory proteins in a layer called the Minos layer. See, all these little details are not what food gurus give you, okay? And that's the reason why not only are, are we warm-blooded mammals, but the reason why mammals have done so well is because not only are they thermally efficient, they're also energy efficient. Because anytime you heat the water around the respiratory proteins, no matter how far you live from the equator, you still have the ability to bring those respiratory proteins closer together. And what we've learned from Nick Lane's work, who's another PhD researcher in uh, England who's written some pretty cool books about mitochondria, is that the closer the respiratory proteins are together – the more they're able to tunnel electrons and the more they're able to tunnel protons. And anything that improves the efficiency of tunneling actually improves life, okay? And the proof in the pudding is very simple. Most of your uh, listeners probably know about this chemical called cyanide. What does cyanide do? It blocks the fourth cytochrome 
uh, and it stops electron tunneling on the inner mitochondrial membrane. As soon as you take it, you're dead immediately. So what is death fundamentally, Evan? The stoppage of electrons along your inner mitochondrial membrane. So you know what that means? Health is getting as many through as physically possible as you go. What are diseases in between there? And that's fundamentally exactly what Doug Wallace has told the world for 40 years. The problem is not too many people are listening to him. And when I say that, the, the doctors who are treating care, uh, taking care of mitochondrial diseases are, but the doctors that really need to listen to him are like the, uh, the nutritionists, the, uh, the guys that, that are peddling, you know, their protein power books and their primal blueprint and their paleo solution and anybody really who sells a diet book. Uh, I mean, if you really want to nail this down, it's pretty simple. Every year, 550 new diet books are published per year. If food and exercise could fit it, do you think just on sheer volume over the last 150 years that maybe we would have one or two books that truly can reverse diseases? It'd be cured if, if, it, if that Correct. were the only, the only And there's not, you know, when you change your diet, it can lead to some improvements. But we're not, we're, at least on my site, we're not really interested in improvements. We're interested in reversals. So let me we're interested in taking diseases and fundamentally eradicating them um, by by understanding the physics of organisms. And that's what I've been teaching people. I've been doing it very consistently for five years. And um, I think people are beginning to wake up to it because just about every single journal that comes out now, you see there's a link to light, water, or magnetism. And circadian biology is, is really taken off the last three or four years. Jack, I want to move in and talk about light, but give us a couple of the dietary foundations. You've already hit on DHEA, and people want to know, okay, all this information DHEA. about – DHA. Isn't that what I said? No, you said DHEA. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. I meant DHA. So we know DHEA is important. You've talked about the benefits of good quality seafood, things like that on the last podcast. What did you eat today so far, or what are you planning to eat today? Um, trying to think. What did I have – I had nuts. I had a handful of almonds this morning and uh, six really big gulf shrimp. And right now I've already drank two, two liters of uh, San Benedetto uh, spring water. And I have a, a glass of uh, my home steeped uh, green tea in front of me. Cool. What are you going to do for dinner? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't know, but I mean, as soon as I finish this, I'll be out outside in the pool, probably getting at least two to three hours of, of full spectrum sun. And today here, it's about 98 degrees and very sunny. Man, it's still hot down there. Oh, yeah. It's very hot. Wow. It'll be hot here until probably the end of October. Cool. Now, how many vegetables are you eating? Uh, well, last night I had cabbage. Um, I eat things that are growing locally. Uh, I would say probably the number one veggie right now is probably onions, spinach, um, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, some, um, acorn squash, uh -huh. 
that's about that's right. I'd say th those are the maximums right now. There's also a lot of uh, I, I eat a lot of cucumbers, tomatoes, uh, garlic, um, and then the spices are huge. Like I use rosemary, basil, uh, curcumin, turmeric, you know, things like that. Just about on anything I cook. Um, I just thought about what I'm having for dinner tonight. Homemade chili. I made chili last night. I left it on the pot on the stove. Cool. Excellent. That sounds good. So with your veggies, are you doing steaming? Are you doing saute with butter? How are a lot you doing I'll do, I'll, A lot of times I'll do them raw, but last night I made smothered cabbage with uh, Vidalia onions. Um, and I made a big, I, I made a whole cabbage out of that. Um, and I'll probably eat on that this whole weekend. Cool. Just for curiosity's sake, how much fat are you eating? Well, this time of the year, you don't need to eat very much because remember, it's a long light cycle. So this is the time of the year where I'm still eating quite a quite a bit of carbs. Um, so because like tomorrow in season. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially down where I'm at. I mean, we we're getting berries like crazy right now. So blueberries, raspberries, strawberries. And see, I'll, I'll put those in omelets like in the morning. I, I don't usually do that, you know, during the week when days I have to work like today. But tomorrow and this holiday weekend, I'll, I'll probably have omelets just about every morning. And I tend to put most of my veggies and fruits in those omelets because I try to get that stuff in early. And then during the rest of the day, I don't eat lunch at all in the summertime. And uh, at dinner, I try not to go crazy pedal to the metal. It's usually um, some kind of either meat or seafood. Um, and I just, I know that I have a piece of brisket that I'm going to do this weekend. Um, and I think some sausages with the chili and that, that'll be it. I mean, it's kind of what comes out of my, uh, my garden at home. Uh, I usually will buy the one thing I do like to eat a lot in the summertime, although I haven't done it recently, but you've reminded me that I need to probably pick some up on the way home is some bok choy. I really like bok choy a lot in the summer, um, but that's a, that's really about it. So when winter comes, you're going to be doing less. One meal a day. One meal a day. What what time are you eating that? Usually dinner time, and that's it. And that meal is heavily ketogenic. So are and, you doing fat during the day? Like you doing any coconut no, oil or ghee or just nothing? I don't do any. I don't do anything during the the during the day. I just do. One meal at night, and it usually gets eaten. Depending on what month we're in, it's usually probably between 4.30 and about 6. And I tend to eat when the light is still up. So obviously when we get to December 21st, since I'm in the Northern Hemisphere, um, it gets dark here around 4.45. Yeah. So I'm usually going to have that, that dinner eaten by 4.30. Wow. And during the, the morning – an afternoon, especially if I'm in surgery, I, I tend to drink about four to six liter bottles of, uh, of spring water, you know, depending on what I've got. I, I rotate it. Uh, in the wintertime, I, I tend to drink a, a certain type of spring water. In the summertime, I'm, I'm a little bit lax about my spring water. That's when I'll drink Pellegrino, San Benedetto, Green Mountain Valley, um, Kentwood. You know, I mix it up. Uh, I don't think it's as big a deal, um, but in the wintertime, I tend to drink uh, Green Mountain Valley and Gerstaliner. 
because it's got a lot of magnesium and calcium in it. And uh, I kind of need that. And I'm a little bit fortunate because I still get quite a lot of sun uh, between about 11 to 1. But I have to be outside at that time in order to get it because we're still making vitamin D. We're, I'm fortunate because I'm one of the few places in the United States where you can still make uh, or get UVB signals because uh, we never have a vitamin D winter where I'm located. Cool. I know you're deep south. Uh-huh. Okay. Now I'm at the 28th latitude. Okay. So so let's talk about light. Thanks for elaborating on the nutrition. I'm sure people are like, what is Jack eating? They want to know. It's it's the million-dollar question, of course. Let's talk about light. This is something that's been very impactful on me. When I used to work at the park, I was out in nature all day, every day. My stress response was incredible. My sleep was incredible. My cognitive function was incredible. Since adopting a more indoor lifestyle, I've noticed some changes. Now, I want to ask about morning light exposure. You've talked about that before, about the importance of that. Yeah. But also, I'm not sure if Mercola was talking about this because you were talking it, talking about this with him or what, but something came across my radar about the screens. So if I'm using a, com- a computer screen in the afternoon, Mercola was saying something like, now he's going to start blocking blue light with the goggles even in the afternoon as long as he gets his morning light exposure. Yeah, well, I mean, if you saw me right now, I have actually have a pair of glasses on. You wouldn't know it. Uh, they're untinted, but they're blue tech lenses. Anytime that I'm on the computer, I tend to keep my skin and my eyes covered from the blue light, uh, even during the day. And the reason for that is the color temperature of the screen is four times what you would find in normal sunlight. So you have to realize the the, the basis of light, how you – to make light very simple for most people listening to this, when the sun rises in the morning, there's three predominant colors that are in the rainbow. It's red, blue, and green. There is some yellow in there, but those are the three biggies. In the morning. Right, in the morning. As soon as it rises, depending on where you are, it changes based on latitude. But this, I'm giving you general generalities now so that people understand what they're physically doing. When you rise in the morning, and I tell all my members to get outside and take their glasses off and look directly at the sun in the morning, as soon as it rises, the blue light actually goes in and stimulates the release of pituitary hormones. What people don't realize is the red light is the antidote for the blue. So here's the key. The amount of blue and red is completely balanced in AM sunlight, okay? The same thing is true at dusk, okay? The key is the photoreceptors in the morning are designed to pay attention to the, the not the crescendo, but the absolute sunrise. As soon as it rises, it goes from dark to light. That light is what turns the brain on. So the way it works from a circadian biology standpoint, remember that the frequencies of light change as the hours go on. So, for example, where I am now at the 28th latitude, Around 7.30, UVA light shows up. Then around 7.50, UVB light shows up. What people don't realize is that all the hormones that were released from 6 o'clock all the way to about 9 are completely demolished by UVA and UVB light hitting your skin. This is, of course, assuming that you're naked outside when this is happening. This is how you're designed to work by nature. So the off switch is the purple light. Um, 
So the problem is when, let's say you live in New York City, you never see the sunlight, okay, until, say, you walking in the city, your skin's completely covered, you're giving your brain a completely mixed signal. And this is the reason why when you draw labs on people that, that live in these places, you'll find that their normal circadian hormonal response is abnormal. And are you talking about thing, cortisol or, or what lab are you alluding I'm, I'm to? I'm talking about everything, but it starts with cortisol and, and salivary melatonins. But the key thing that sets the AM tone is the presence of light on your eye. And what, what starts the circadian um, switch for like the sex steroid hormones that peak in men around 10 o'clock for testosterone is actually that blue light in the morning. What decreases it? is actually the UVA and UVB light that hits your skin because what people don't realize is that that color light, when it hits your skin, it raises about 60% of your blood volume up into your skin and that's where the uh, sex steroid hormones, specifically estrogen and testosterone, are inactivated by UV light. And that doesn't happen in most people. So if you live, say this way, through your teens and 20s, what happens is when you're on your cell phone and on your, your computer, you're getting a constant signal of we need to make hormones constantly, constantly, constantly. So if you check kids, say when they're 10, 12, 13, from the TVs, the cell phone, you'll see this is why they start to go into precocious puberty. Then all of a sudden, when they get to be 17, 18, 19 years old, all their sex steroid hormones crash. Why? because their pituitary gland no longer is yoked to the normal light cycles. So it actually does not produce the hormones as it should. So let me ask you this. So you're saying, let's say right now, we're at about 3.30 in the afternoon, still pretty sunny, early September here. Is there more blue light coming out of a, of a computer screen now in the afternoon than the sky? Isn't there still plenty of blue light that's emitted in the afternoon? Yeah, but the blue light in the sun is completely balanced by the red that's in it. And that's the point you're missing. Okay, the so blue there's light not... The computer has no red light in it. Oh, okay. So if you and were that's... to just put on the flux, which you and I have talked about before, and you that just... That doesn't do shit for you. That, that, that's a half-truth. That's like, that, that's like you know the low-carb, high-fat guys telling you, hey, just eat ketogenic all the time and your problems will go away. That's a half-truth. So this... And that's the, that's the point that I think Mercola is starting to pick up on is that hey, this thing with light in the eye and this thing with light on skin is a little bit more nuanced than even we want to know. And um, I would tell your readers, if you want to learn a little bit more about that, there's a guy from Germany. He's a doctor, a medical doctor. His name is Alexander Wunsch. You spell his last name W-U-N-S-C-H. Uh, he is a photobiologic uh, expert in uh, Germany. And I believe... Mercola's actually had him on his podcast. Unfortunately, no one's really asked him these questions uh, that pretty much him and I talk about all the time, at least on my blog and with my members. But you need to understand these little details about light because even if you shine light on your belly at night, you are creating a major problem. Oh, for Why? sure. Because I've read about even behind the knee, they did just yeah. a tiny light, and that was enough to suppress melatonin. Yeah, that was, that was a study from 1991, but the problem with that study in 1991 is they didn't know why. Today we know why. Why is And it? the reason for that is there's a 
a new photoreceptor that's found in the cornea and in the skin. It was discovered in 2008. It's called neuropsin. And in my time series on my blog, that's where I started to write about neuropsin and explain to people that's why you really don't want to put a, a contact lens over your cornea because you're effectively blocking um, neuropsin from doing its job. And, and neuropsin is a very interesting option. It's, a, it's an illumination detector on the eye and the skin. Interesting. So let me ask you this. So even a clear contact lens, that's still going to affect the wavelength. Absolutely a problem. Interesting. So what do you do? You just wear glasses, because you wear glasses, don't you? Right. I, I, that's part of the reason why I've never, uh, I should say 12 years ago, gone away from contacts and always wear glasses. And most of my long-term members have been told this, you know, ad nauseum. And I explained to them, there, there's other issues with it. The other big issue with contacts is it affects uh, the photoreceptor regeneration in the eye every night because of the way the photoreceptors are set up anatomically in the eye. And I think this is where where Joe uh, Mercola got really interested because people don't understand actually how rods and cones in the eyes regenerate. And it turns out there's a cell called the Mueller cell in the eye that's really important with that. And the crazy thing is if you look at the anatomy of the retina, you'll notice that uh, the distances between uh, the blood source and the photoreceptor is really, really far away. Like, for example, uh, you've probably heard about the part of the eye called the macula. And the macula is where most of our fine-tuned sight really occurs. But, you know, the funny thing is there's no blood flow from the ophthalmic artery at that level. So if you've ever seen a neurosurgeon or an eye doctor look in someone's eye, you could probably pull this up on the Internet while you're listening to this and look at, you know, Uh, what an ophthalmoscope uh, picture looks like, you'll see right in one area there's no blood flow to the place that's called the macula. And that's where our most sensitive vision is. Well, the reason for that is what gets that information to the brain is actually water. And if you look at the anatomy of the retina, uh, water is not only is it a repository for electromagnetic radiation and it's a battery – but it actually imprints light frequencies for us to do, and it's incredibly precise. So you're saying hydration is incredibly important. Well, of course it's important. I mean, any I think any conventional doctor will tell you that. If you have a patient in the ICU that's dehydrated, you know, for every uh, uh, one degree a patient's temperature goes up, their uh, basal metabolic rate increases by 13%. So, do so you I mean, wear, that's well known. Do you take your glasses off in the morning then when you're setting yourself up for the day, your Absolutely. circadian rhythm? Absolutely. So right now, do you are you, do you have glasses on when you're on the computer? You said they're just a... a Absolutely. And not only that, they're, they're blue tech lenses. So do you have a long sleeve on and that's how yep. you're protecting your skin? Yep. Okay. So if your legs are under a computer desk... And, and not, not only that, but there's a window behind me where the, the sun is shining. So and if you saw right behind my right shoulder there's a uva light on right behind my computer a light bulb correct and it's just it's just called a uva bulb correct is that super special is that something you can find at lowe's uh, this one you can find anywhere i mean i just use that anytime i'm on a computer i make sure that i have a uva exposure because as you probably know even though i have a nice window in my office uh glass actually blocks uv light exactly so 
you want to have uh, uh, that specific frequency inside your office because all the other frequencies are getting out. As I told you before, if you have a UVA receptor in, neuropsin is paying attention to that and you're giving the proper signal to your cornea and also your skin that, hey, it really is still day out. Yeah, and if and you weren't it, using that, then here it is 3 o'clock. People are going to have that midday crash. Their body's thinking it's 6 o'clock or even later. Correct, and that's exactly that's, – that's the reason why the physics of cells, the physics of organisms is extremely important because many of the things that you hear about you know, on other podcasts – you know, they talk about all this nonsense about, oh, well, this helps to crash, that helps to crash. No, there's only one thing that helps to crash. It's getting light environment correct. So here, here's what you're saying, Jack, just to summarize, because I want to make sure we get to talk about this, this study about uh, cell phone and brain glucose. Best case scenario, you're butt naked and you're outside all day, every day. That way, you're not disrupting your rhythm. However, a lot of people are inside. They're on their computers, they're on their phones, they're on their tablets. Even in the daytime, it's not just putting on the blue blockers before bed that's going to save you. No, that, 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 that's, again, that, it's good that you're doing that, but realize there's a lot more fat on the bone. I know, I know. But people, they want to hear the simple takeaway, which is the more they're outside, the better, generally speaking. Is that safe absolutely. to say? Absolutely. That is absolutely true. Okay. And, and the more that are skin and their eyes are exposed, like the, the two things that you'll never see a Jack Cruz member wearing outside is sunglasses and sunblock or a lot of clothes. Sure thing. Yep. Unless you're maybe you're having a retreat on a mountain and there's a lot of snow, I'd say you'd probably wear sunglasses then. It's bright. Uh, it depends. I've actually done that with Irwin LaCour, and no, I didn't have sunglasses on. What'd you do? Did you put on like uh, charcoal under your eyes or something? How'd you how'd you oh, reduce it, the glare? I didn't. I didn't have a problem with it. Um, there wasn't glare. Well, there's glare, but this is the funny thing about about light. Once you get used to the ambient lit environment, what normally would bother you doesn't bother the person that's been in those environments. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, you know, and I will tell you that I had one of my members who's a physician in Canada actually a year ago come down to my house and spend a week with me in my house because he wanted to see how I did things. And I made him get naked with me in the backyard. And, you know, he lives in British Columbia. And he kept telling me that, you know, he couldn't look at the sun without tearing. And I said, well, that's a good sign because you know why you tear is because your cornea is trying to cool itself just like CT for cold thermogenesis, so that you could absorb more UV and IR light. And he looked at me, because you're kidding me. I said, no. So when I put him in the backyard, in three days, he stopped hearing. And then he miraculously started to tell me that he was sleeping better. And then he started to dream for the first time in his life since he was a kid. And I, these are all these little things you people don't realize you know, he lived, I think, at the 47th latitude. Yeah, way and, there. And it was like September 20th when he came here. So he was already in vitamin D winter where he was. And he came down here. And even in September, at the mid to end of September here, he still had a very powerful effect. And I explained to him, I said, well, just imagine if you were doing this in May, June, July, and August. Um don't you think that you would have had better adaptation? And one of the adaptations that you get in your eye, you have a thing in your eye called the RPE, which is called 
the retinal pigmentum epithelium, and it's got a lot of melanin granules in it. Well, someone who lives at the 47th parallel, that their eye is optimized to a loosely coupled haplotype on the mitochondria. Well, when you move to a place and you have a more melanin in your eye, guess what? Those signals are transmitted all throughout your body, so you become much more able to handle uh, a brighter illuminated um, place to be. And the reason why you believe and why you said what you said to me is you're thinking about the Swedish girls or the people that live in Colorado that have to wear the glare because when they look at the snow from the albedo effect, you have to realize, where do they live? They live in a poorly lit environment year-round. Ah, okay. And there's the difference. I would tell you, if you really want to see the effect, go to the Big Island, Hawaii. Go on the top of Mauna Kea. Even in June, they still have snow. And you'll notice that the native Hawaiians that spend their whole life there, they don't have a big problem. Right. I know. Yeah, sunglasses aren't paleo. That's for sure. I know what you mean. No, they're not. But you wouldn't know that by going to a paleo event. Right. I know. I know. Yeah, you're totally right. I, you know, I didn't even think about most of these people. They're living in a totally different climate, and then they just they fly to the mountains, and then they're there. So the body doesn't have time to catch up. So there is a, right. a bit I of I call a lag. it the solar callus. I, the same thing happens with your skin. You know, people on the equator, the reason why, you know, they do well. Like one of, uh, one of my good friends, uh, Tristan Haggard, lives in Ecuador. And, you know, he's originally from California. His solar callus now in Ecuador is far different than it was when he lived in California. Why? Because he's developed a solar callus. Really? Same thing with me. I'm, I'm, you know, a northern European who's from New York City who now lives, you know, close to the Gulf of Mexico. Therefore, it's taken me several years, but I'm able to, to get in the backyard here now for f- between three and five hours without getting sunburned. So you just, know, and that so, could never happen in New York City, you know, when I was 15 years old. Totally. So just to be clear, you're not advising people stare at the sun in the middle of the day, just primarily mornings and evenings. Is that right? Uh, well, initially, no, I don't want I, I think sun gazing can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. I think once you understand what your goal is and what you're trying to do, that morning sunlight's not really going to hurt you. Yeah, uh, it can if you I mean, you're you know, you look at it for two hours straight. Totally. But all you need to do is we're talking between a minute and and maybe three minutes to get the signal uh, to your brain that it is physically set. Then the other illuminating factors, not only your eye, but neuropsin in your cornea and also on your skin will maintain that signal until it comes to dusk. And then this is where the photoreceptors in the eye get very interesting because they are decrescendo. The rods are decrescendo photoreceptors. So when neuropsin stops firing because UVB goes away and then UVA goes away, like in my, my, my situation right now, 2.48 in the afternoon, I'm, I still have plenty of UVA and UVB left. It won't go away until probably the UVB will go away around about 5, 5.30. Uh, UVA will go away probably around six. That's when dust comes. And then we have about an hour to an hour and a half. And what your body's paying attention to there, it's looking for the red shift of the sunset. So meaning that red light is more powerful and plentiful at dusk, blue light's still there, but it's decrescendoing. In other words, you're getting less and less and less of it. See, 
there's the other opsin that comes into it, and that's called melanopsin. And melanopsin is probably the key number one part of why most people are sick today, and it's part of the reason why most people have mitochondrial problems because blue light, as it decrescendos, actually uh, is shrinking your mitochondrial membranes. When blue light is present to an excess, it actually expands them. So fake light causes your respiratory proteins to enlarge, and that slows tunneling speeds. And when tunneling speeds are slowed, this is when we upregulate glucose metabolism or the AMPK pathways, which gets into that cell phone study that you wanted to talk about earlier. Because what people don't realize, when I say blue light, blue light is the number one non-native EMF that affects all of us, and none of us seem to realize it. Uh, because blue light is always balanced in nature, but in man's world, it's completely unbalanced. And it's become more unbalanced because when you're indoors, all these new lights that we have, like the LED lights and the fluorescence, there's, they've subtracted out UV and IR light from those lights for one reason. That's why they're energy efficient. The problem is they've never realized what the effect is biologically on the photoreceptors on the eye, on the central retinal pathways. Well, why would they? They don't. Well, they they should have. Well, they should have because there was a lot of data in the 50s and 60s, two specific, well, one physician and then the other one was not a physician, but he was a a time-lapse photographer. The the physician's name was Hallwich. You spell his name H-O-L-L-O-W-I-C-H. He started to talk about these effects on the eye and on animals in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, and he was a German physician. The guy was brilliant because he figured this out probably before anybody else. But the guy here in the United States that picked up on it was a guy named John Ott. And John Ott's claim to fame is that he was a world expert in time-lapse photography. And if you remember back when they opened up Disney World in the early 1970s, Walt Disney actually hired Ott to do time-lapse photography for one of the Disney movies. And it was during this time that Ott started to mess around with a lot of different lighting, you know, to film these flowers. And he started to pay attention to the effect that different frequencies had on when flowers would bloom and when they would grow. Then he extended his studies to living things, and he found that living things exhibited the same effects that plants did. And he wrote a book about this called Health and Light. And it was, I think it was released in the first time in the 60s. And the funny thing was, Ott was so influential in the 1960s, his work was the reason why GE had to pull black and white TVs out of uh, American households in the late 1960s, because he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that black and white cathode ray TVs were releasing x-rays about a foot to two feet in front of the screen. And that's part of the reason why even to these days, you're a young guy, so you would know this. But when I was growing up, uh, my grandparents always told us, don't sit too close to the TV. Oh, my gosh. And the reason why that was, you know, it wasn't old lore. It's because I was the one that proved to GE and NCR that their TVs were doing this. And believe it or not, GE pulled all the TVs. And this is when GE was really paying attention to these effects. And the interesting thing is, Ott did um, 
an unbelievable study that would never be reproduced today. Uh, but it was in Sarasota, Florida in the early 70s where he took kids under artificial light with the windows closed uh, and they all developed – most of the kids developed uh, what you would call uh, a version of uh, ADD. And the second part of the uh, study – and he time-lapsed photography, this whole thing, just so you know that. The interesting thing he did for the corollary as the control group, he took the same kids, left the same light in. The only difference was he opened the windows in the school. And let the sunlight in. And the kids didn't have the problem. And he wrote a book. And in the book, it's called Health and Light by John Ott, sold millions of copies. And this guy, again, uh, tried to give this data to physicians and research scientists of the day. And what blocked him ultimately was people in industry realized that what he was saying was all these bulbs that we were selling people – uh, were a real problem. And that wasn't so good. That wasn't good news for um, the bottom line of many of these companies. And when you go back and read Ott's work and you go back and read Hallwich's work, the answers have been staring at us, Evan, for a hundred years. The problem is food gurus, doctors, uh, patients, they don't go read about light. They don't understand the history of what's already been done. This stuff is well-known and well-published. If you read Hallwich's book, you read Ott's book, you go read some of the books that I tell my members to read, the bibliographies will keep you busy for 20 years. Wow. And you'll start to scratch your head and go, why aren't we talking about this? Well, it's very simple. It's an inconvenient truth, Evan, because our entire economy is based around bringing people out of nature, indoors, to try to make them more productive utilizing computers. Exactly. Yeah. And it turns out that we're actually making people productive for maybe the first two, two and a half, maybe three decades of their life, and then they fall apart. Yes. And that's kind of what has happened the last 20 years. And when you go back and read Ott's seminal work about what the observations were back before we had – the technology. You have to realize back then all we had was fluorescence and incandescence. Yeah. That's not nearly as bad as it is now. LED lights are absolutely one of the worst things that you could ever create when you understand the physics of organisms. Well, here's my take on it too, Jack. People in these companies promote the LEDs due to the energy saving that they're doing. However, nobody talks about the cargo ships that are coming from China where the pollution is equivalent to, I think, 700 cars each that these that these ships are emitting into the ocean. That's the real source of pollution and, and issues there. But like you mentioned, it's industry. Industry depends on these little things like swap out this bulb for that bulb and turn your lights off at night, which I, I agree with all of that. But I think we're not moving the needle as much as we, as we possibly could because it is an inconvenient truth. And – well, it is, but people don't realize that light drives every bit of biology on this planet. That's why I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast that people need to fundamentally realize that photosynthesis drives everything. So let me ask you this, because I, I know I need to be respectful, respectful of your time here. If people are coming to you and they say, look, Jack, I've, I've, read, I've read the articles. I've got the diet in check. I'm eating my good quality fats. I'm eating seasonally. I'm eating with the light. 
I'm waking up with the light. I'm going to bed with the light. I still can't lose weight. You're going to tell the people. One Their of the light people, environment sucks. Yep. Okay. Environment sucks. It's all about everything is about the environment. I'm always going to tell people, do not look inside of you for the defect. Look in your environment for the defect. I'm going to teach them how to biohack their mitochondria. Yep. And I'm going to show them eventually the things they don't want to see. It's usually the lights that they work around. It's the lights in their car. It's the lights that their idiot neighbors keep on at night to keep the burglars out of the hallway. Yeah. It's uh, the RF uh, frequencies that you use on your stupid sleep devices. It's the, the clock radio at the side of your bed. It's you know um, your watch battery in your Fitbit. It's your cell phone that you that you use as a, a clock that's three and a half feet from your head. It's uh, your smart um, circuit board in your refrigerator that's right next to your bathroom door or your bedroom door. It's the baby monitor in your child's crib. It is the Wi-Fi signals in your fire alarm that happen to be right in your bedroom that you didn't even realize. These are all the things, Evan, that we don't see. See, the problem with non-native EMF is we don't see ultraviolet. We don't see, we don't see infrared. We don't see all the frequencies above and below the visible band. That's all our eye camera. Those, those three photoreceptors are designed to see three frequencies, you know, three colors. But we don't realize that our mitochondria pays attention to all the others. You can't trick and it. That, that's exactly it. And then what happens is the geometry changes there. Everything changes in you. And how it fundamentally works in the mitochondria is very simple to understand. We have two major biochemical pathways that work in a mitochondria that I think everybody listening to this know. One's the TCA cycle that deals with glucose. The other one is beta oxidation that deals with fats. Any simple organism, and when I say simple, I'm talking about there's three kingdoms of life, prokaryotes, archaea, and us, eukaryotes. The simple versions of life that we're here and have been here for 3.8 billion years, all they need to work is the TCA cycle. But eukaryotes, the more complex they get, they have to use beta oxidation. And beta oxidation is the reason why we stole a mitochondria 600 million years ago. And that mitochondria, the only way it can undergo beta oxidation is it has to oscillate. The inner mitochondrial membrane has to oscillate at 100 hertz to burn fat maximally. That means eating fat doesn't mean you burn fat. The oscillation in the mitochondria is what determines whether you can get into beta oxidation. Who, who taught people that, Evan? Doug Wallace. So translate that you, translate that a little bit more. What are you saying well, about simple, it's antenna. Basically what, uh, what Wallace is telling everybody is that the inner mitochondrial membrane, where the crista and those four respiratory proteins are, and the ATPase is, is an antenna for the environment. So anything that knocks you off that 100 hertz frequency mm -hmm. means you can't fat burn, no matter even if you're eating fat like an Inuit Eskimo. Okay. So that means you have to rely on TCA, which is the Krebs cycle, to make energy. Well, guess what? If you're a complex organism and have 3,600 mitochondria in every neuron and every heart cell, how far is that going to get you? Not very far.
And so the and things that, that are so the things that are disrupting that that's back to the Wi-Fi, that's back to the you cell got phones, it, et cetera. And that's where it comes to, and and it's as simple as that. The goal is for everybody listening to this is you want to maintain the your mitochondrial uh, specific resonance frequency. And this, and this is, is what. And this is why you live in the middle of nowhere, correct? You got it. Well, this is why I do it now because I have many obedient idiots around me. Remember, every every person listening to this probably owns seven to ten devices that emit RF and Wi-Fi signals. So that means each one of those things is capable of knocking off that hundred hertz frequency. So just for argument's sake, say I live in an apartment building like I did when I was in New York. And there, in that one apartment building, there's 1,100 people. That means I have 1,100 people uh, radiating me constantly. So even if I do everything right, yes, will it work? No, definitely not. Man, and that's the, the point. I don't even know, Jack. I can't remember. I think we have. I think we've talked since la- since I lived in Austin. We were on the third floor of an apartment, and every night when I tried to go to sleep, and I used the word tried heavily. I was staring at a cell phone tower. There were 450 towers within a four-mile radius from Antenna Search's website. Well, I got used to it. It's, it's going to get a lot worse when we go to 5G. And see, my members already know that. Well, Jack, here's, I, an, here's another question, man, because I do, I do want to ask you about this, this research here. Did you see, by the way, yesterday, so Elon Musk of Tesla and SpaceX, he was sending up his rocket, which not, not too, too far away from you, sending up his rocket from Florida – and attached to it was Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, his satellite, which is going to deploy Wi-Fi from space. Right. There's no stopping this, and this is where this is headed. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there's, there's, there'll be an eventual stop. That's the one thing that uh, I think that's great about nature. Yeah, I when, understand. When humans begin to toy with the very fundamentals of nature, nature has this really interesting way of uh, leveling the playing field and that's been going on for about the last 50 years it's not going to be overnight though you don't know well i mean yeah i don't know that you're right you don't i don't and and nobody nobody can but every time that g keeps going up on the network Mm -hmm. people are going to continue to get sicker quicker that's the reason why people now come in to um my emergency room at 20 years old and have carotid uh, occlusions that's why what does I mean, that I'll give mean? You a, well, meaning that the carotid artery's got a blood clot in it normally we don't see that stuff when i first trained in medicine told people are 60 70 80 years old i'll give you the better one that that fits with your age cohort Do you, don't you find it a little bit ironic that people now want to put defibrillators in schools why are teenagers dropping dead in their schools from sudden cardiac events could it be that they they put the Wi-Fi towers right on top of the school and everybody has to bring their iPad and their cell phone and out in order to connect because nobody uses books anymore? Well, I know they banned them in, what was it, Sweden or Denmark or both? Well, they banned them in several places in, in California and even Florida. I mean, it's local. But here's the deal, Jack. I mean, if you your, are— Your your age cohort doesn't think about this. Yeah, why do we need defibrillators in schools I mean, these kids are teenagers. I know, man. I know. Well, let me ask you this. You're in the middle of nowhere, though. Here's the deal, Jack. You're in the middle of nowhere. Mark Zuckerberg and uh, I believe Richard Branson talked about it, doing it with like hot air balloons or something with his uh, satellite Wi-Fi. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're still going to get beamed. Are you just hoping that your exposure will be less than someone else's in the city because you're not going to be getting the 
neighbor's Wi-Fi signal on you? Well, I haven't. The one thing you have to know about me is I'm a pretty good biohacker. I know you are. I know and, you are. That's why I'm asking uh, you this question, because what, what do you do when it goes to the sky and you're on a, your... There's a lot of things you can do. And, and, and those people who visited my house, both in Nashville and in New Orleans, would tell you that my roof was made out of metal. Yeah, but what if and you want to be outside all day and you're not inside? Doesn't matter. You, there's still ways of doing that. You ever hear of a nano wall where you can bring the outside inside? Look, there's there's a lot of answers. I don't think it's important to go through all the answers. Here's the real point. So you still have hope. Oh, well, I always have hope. Good. And the reason why is because there is going to be. We're not going to save everybody out there, but the people that are interested in this, they're going to gravitate to people like me. And they're going to say, look, everybody's getting sicker and, you know, we're eating this paleo diet. And it doesn't really matter. And it's speeding up and it's getting faster. I don't want this to happen to me. What are the things that I need to do? And the first thing that you need to do is you need to educate yourself on truly how a cell works. And when you understand how a cell works, then you become an expert biohacker and you start biohacking the mitochondrial DNA that you were given by your mom. And then you begin to understand how that mitochondrial DNA will act in an environment that you're in. For example, the environment you're in in Texas and say the environment that I could put you in, say, in Uganda would be radically different. Okay, so then we begin to teach you how to do things in your local environment to mitigate those risks so that you can offset them. And there's a couple of relatively simple things that you can do. Um, when it gets really bad, as you, as you're talking about, and for me, 5g, the use of Tetra, uh, the guys that are beaming it down, um, you know, from space, there's ways of getting around that the use of water, the use of, uh, underground places to sleep, uh, even the use of, uh, local Faraday cages. The best Faraday cage is the one your body already uses. It's called water. Nothing, nothing is better than water. So just sleep in a float tank. <laughs> right. Uh, there'll be, there'll be ways of, of getting around this. And, you know, me and, uh, my fellow biohackers, guys like Ruben Salinas, these are the things when we get together, uh, when we get together with my members, these are the things that we actually talk about. And we talk about not so much in a brainstorming sense, we're actually building things to offset these risks because we know the technology stampede is not going to stop. Exactly. But just because it's not going to stop doesn't mean we're going to stop. For sure. Yeah. It's just annoying that you have to do all of that, but you just have to go with it. Let's talk about this this piece of research here. You just posted it up on your Facebook page. People can go check you out, Dr. Jack Cruz. This is an interesting study, which actually it's from, what, 2011? 2011. 20, yeah. Wow. So that means it's not a surprise five years ago and you're just finding out about it now. It's amazing. So the, the title for people, it's effects of cell phone radio frequency signal exposure on brain glucose metabolism. So what I actually was shocked at, Jack, reading through this here is that there is some talk about the quote unquote potential carcinogenic effect from the RF EMF emissions of cell phones. And then how right after that it talks about how these EMFs have basically been proven that they are penetrating into the brain. Correct. Whereas before that was sort of 
Well, it was never before. We always have known about it, but the military and the government have buried it for the sake of getting the 1996 FCC Act passed. But what here's did that the act do? That act basically gave everybody in the United States, meaning every cell company and the military, complete complete control of irradiating the population, and they can't even be sued even if it's found later that there was health uh, detriments. And the the gentleman who was the chairman of that committee, I hate to say his name is Billy Tozan, and he was uh, a state congressman in Louisiana. Um, After he uh, left Congress, his son became the number one lobbyist for the cell industry. He has now left Congress, and he works as the number one lobbyist in the world for the cell industry industry. And people don't understand just how devastating that law was. And when you begin to understand what that law fundamentally does, there's really no stopping the um, the march on. And the problem is our whole economy is based on it. Yeah. But where it all started, uh, if you want to learn about the, the real, real, real details, I would tell you, go read Andrew Marino's book called Going Somewhere. Um, it's an eye-opening book. But just so you know, to, to stay on topic here, this uh, article that you mentioned written by Nora Vocal, where did she get the idea, Evan, to do this study? In case you don't know this, this study was a repeat of a study that was done by a guy named Alan Fry. And Alan Fry did his study in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And guess who he did it for? The United States government. And what did we find out back then? We found out that even at RF ranges, the extreme low frequency radiation devices, microwaves, even in the UHF, those are old school TV um, uh, transmitters that we no longer use in VHF as well, that actually opens the blood brain barrier, uh, which you can actually see he proved it in animals. And when this occurs, it upregulates glucose metabolism for the reasons I just mentioned to you earlier. Now, Volkow and uh, Fry didn't get into the details between why you can't fat burn and the TC upregulation. But the one thing that Volkow did that I think was really interesting is that she showed that it increases AMPK pathway signaling, which is exactly what um, we talked about earlier. And when people begin to understand, you may understand why now I have such a huge problem with the low-carb, high-fat community because they're telling everybody that, look, you can be okay eating a ketogenic diet. Here's the corollary. That's not true if you live in a blue-lit microwave world. That's part of the reason why a guy like Jimmy Moore has the problems that he got. You can be in nutritional ketosis constantly, but if your mitochondria cannot fat burn because that intermitochondrial membrane can't oscillate at 100 hertz – Dude, you're pissing in the wind. So if Jimmy was able to fix his light environment, you think he would not have as tough of He would a do a lot better than he's doing now. And the reason why that's never going to happen, Jimmy makes his living off his podcast and the things that he does. So how so, could he mitigate his environment, though? What if he took some of the strategies with the glasses? He'd have to stop doing what he's doing. I mean, you can't walk around with earphones and, and, and things on your head constantly with, you know— tweeting out every last little bit that somebody says. 
Well, I mean, I'm I'm not on social media. I'm not on social media nearly a fraction of what most people in the the health space are. But I do do a weekly show. So for me, what's what's the risk here of a once a week call? How often are you doing uh, interviews? Well, I try to do as little as possible when I do them. I try to be outside. Sure. Today, unfortunately, I couldn't do that because I had to work. Yep. So, but most of them, like for example, if, if you talk to any of my members on the site, every webinar I do is almost always outside in the sun, directly in the sun for two or three hours. So, what's my risk level if I'm on the phone? What I do typically, as far as I'm concerned, too high. Okay. How's that? Yeah, that's fine. So what I do, I'll call people from the computer and use the microphone and the speaker on the computer, which is usually a couple feet away outside. Well, it's simple. Go buy yourself an RF uh, or a trimeter and start testing. I think you'll be shocked. Yeah, I have a trimeter. Which setting? Well, it depends which trimeter you have. But the number one one I would tell you to do is to really freak you out. Oh. I'll give you I'll give you a good uh, biohack that'll that'll totally blow your mind. Um, there's, you know how there's restaurants out now that are beginning to go to uh, – you can order your your food wirelessly and then they bring it to you. What are you um, talking about? Like where they don't have people to take your order? Like robots well, no, that take your order? Well, they not people to take your order, but they'll let you put your order like on an iPad or some kind of uh, wearable device or sometimes the girl will come up and do it through her, her iPhone. I want you to look underneath the table and you'll notice that there's a, a radio frequency device under there. Go out and buy a simple RF device, like a cornet uh, device, and go in there. And one of the things that you'll notice is that when you go to these places, you'll order food and you'll still be hungry when you're done. And the reason for that is because as you're sitting there getting radiated, your respiratory proteins are becoming uncoupled. And that's and guess guess who knew about all these things? The food industry, the guys in the restaurants, because they know if they put that stuff in there, you would order more food. Cornet. What, what do you mean Cornet device? How do I look Cornette. that up? It's one of the trade names for the RF devices that you can go buy in Radio Shack. Ah, okay. So it's an RF. You're talking about RF signals. Correct. And, and, and people don't realize that just an RF device can cause this problem. We just had a, a study come out uh, – in May of 2016, when I was actually in London giving a talk on this very topic, um, it's called the NTP toxicity study. And it was a two year study that was not polluted by any industry. Mm-hmm. And it showed one of the problems I had with the study is it used nocturnal animals. But here's the key even in nocturnal animals, it showed a two year study that they all had elevated rates of cancer. Now, there was a lot of problems with the control in the study. But here's the point. The point is, is that everybody for 50 years said it's impossible for non-ionizing radiation to cause cancer. And yet, now we have another study that says that's not true. And there's tons of studies out there. I mean, Judy Wertheimer did a study in Denver, Colorado in 1977 that showed kids that just are around the electric power grid that's oscillating at 60 hertz had a really elevated risk of developing leukemia and lymphomas. So what you're saying, now let me clarify there, you're saying kids like running around, around underground power lines, on sidewalks, stuff like that? Dude, I'm talking about in their house. Oh, in the house. I'm talking about in their house where they sleep. A 60 uh, hertz oscillating AC circuit. Oh, just a standard plug. You got it, bro. Judy Wertheimer did that study in 1977. 
and it's published. And this isn't and, on your nightly news, folks. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it's talked about in different places. But, you know, people, when we talk about this thing, they go, oh, this is the tinfoil hat. No, it's not. It's really you not. Go, well, here's really, the deal, Jack. And I know you know this, but just, just so people can wrap their head around it. Things get labeled as a conspiracy so that they don't get brought to the forefront of people's attention. Just, oh, it's a conspiracy, and then it's brushed off. Well, I, I think that's true with this, but I think if your readers and listeners have the fortitude to go get Marino's book and understand who Marino is, he's a lawyer and he's also a PhD in physics. He also was the one that worked with uh, Robert O. Becker, who actually worked with Judy Wertheimer, who, who reproduced this study that was originally done in Europe. Um, Becker was the one that actually told the military that many of the things that we were doing were causing problems. He's also the reason why the uh, the power lines in New York City had to have a, a, a wider swath of land between people, animals, and the lines. Because back in 1977, nobody believed what he said was true. And the, the only way that people started to pay attention to him is when he went on 60 Minutes with uh, Mike Wallace and said what he said and three weeks later all his funding from the NIH dried up. Becker. This is a guy that was twice nominated for the Nobel Prize. This is Becker who went on 60 Minutes. You got it. Wow. 1977. Can I find that on YouTube, I wonder? Yeah, you can. It's on there. You can find it. I'm going to look you it can up. Actually find, you can actually find the uh, the transcript of it. I, I don't know if you'll find the video copy because remember back in 1977, I don't think there was any uh, I don't think there was any uh, way to get that, but I'm sure if you look for a bootleg of it, you'll find it. But I know the transcript is online because I've seen it. And uh, you'll also find the same thing is true. If you go back and, and look in the Boston Globe uh, about the uh, time that the uh, the Russians were microwaving our embassy in Moscow with uh, over the woodpecker frequency. That was published in the Boston Globe in 1976. What was what was that about? I remember you told me about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, the what were the they Rus trying to do? What was the goal of of the? Well, the Russians found out in the 1950s that extreme low frequency radiation, meaning RF, UHF, VHF, and microwaves. These are the two uh, types of uh, radiations that are on either side of the visible spectrum caused major biologic problems. And they went to a corporation called the Sandia Corporation in Los Alamos at the height of the Cold War. And they sent their best uh, scientists over to meet the U.S. scientists and shared with them this information. And of course, the scientists were very interested in it, but the military told the scientists to disregard this because they felt this was espionage. And long story short, the military got their way because they realized if anybody in the United States science community believed what the Russians were doing, it would put a stop to all of the deployment of uh, the Department of Defense's communication devices that were being built at that time. And people don't realize that the United States military didn't even have radar installed until 1941 after uh, Pearl Harbor. And that's the reason why Pearl Harbor got bombed, because we were three months late in putting up radar installations on the uh, mountains on Oahu. Um, and this occurred, I believe, in 1952, if uh, memory serves me correctly from reading Marino's book, because Marino lays all this out. So anyway, 
the uh, Russian scientists could not believe that the United States would not take this threat seriously because they were trying to do mankind a favor and tell them you should not use these band of frequencies in the electromagnetic spectrum because they're damaging to life. So when they didn't listen, what did the Russians do? They basically took a microwave dish and pointed it at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow for 12 years. And for in those 12 years, there was three ambassadors. All three ambassadors died of leukemia or lymphoid cancer. Almost everybody in the embassy got most of the diseases that you see today in the public. How did they solve the problem? They put tinfoil in the inside of the embassy when they found out what the Russians were doing. The Russians did it to prove a point that you shouldn't use this for communication. And guess what happened? In 1973, Henry Kissinger gave everybody call duty pay. That was a 30% bump in their salary if you happened to be deployed at the Moscow embassy as hush money. And the Boston Globe found this out in 1976 and put it on the front page of the paper. Evan, do you know why nobody paid attention to it in 1976? Uh, was anybody using microwaves then? Nope. Microwave ovens was only for people like Donald Trump, the super uber wealthy. Was cell phones invented then? Nope. So nobody had a clue. What it even was, yeah. You got it. So guess what? Imagine if we put the same story on the front page of the Boston Globe circa 2016 when Everybody uses a microwave, and everybody who has a cell phone realizes it's an RF antenna with a bi-directional microwave device that you're putting up to the side of your head every day. Yep. Therein lies the issue. And see, here's the problem. People will not change until they understand the science. I promise you, if you pick up Andrew Marino's book called Going Somewhere and read it from start to finish, you will put that book down and go – I have some work to do. And that's when that's when I became a master biohacker. And I don't have time for people who are peddling half-truths. It's as simple as that. That's part of the reason why uh, I'm such a pain in the ass to people who are food gurus. It's part of the reason why I'm a pain in the ass um, to scientists who, who don't have a clue what's already published in the literature. If you have an open mind, I don't know why you would be a pain in the ass to them, though. Well, well, because, listen, this message is very disruptive to their their cash flows, and it's a big issue. And not only that, when you consider that we now live in an economy that's based in and around this, I mean, you know, I'm, there's a lot of good things that technology does. Like sure. one of the nice things about what we're doing today, you and I are able to talk over the Internet about these issues, but we have to realize by doing this, there's a trade-off. We're yeah. actually hurting each other by doing it. Yeah. The key thing is, is that people will still do things that are dangerous. I mean, people still smoke. People still swim with sharks. You know, people still do stupid shit. Now, you still have a but, cell phone, right? Huh? You have a cell phone, don't you? Yeah, I have one, but it never goes up to the side of my head. What do you do? Put it on speaker. Always. All the time. In fact, when I was in London, and I told you in early June, I gave my cell phone to, you know, they had a runner that was with me. While I had my glasses on, the cell phone wasn't with me the whole time I was in London. And they looked at me and they're like, dude, you're for real. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't mess around. 
So what if you just put it on airplane mode and put it in your pocket? Could do that. You know why I don't like doing that? Why? That creates a habit. I don't want the cell phone anywhere attached to my body. Yeah, I don't blame you. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I try not to be in front of a computer too long. It's part of the reason why I try to find people who really like being in front of the computer and pay them to do what I'm not willing to do anymore. So what if you turn your screen off? Like, like for example, if I'm trying to mitigate what I'm doing. If well, I my have, screen is off right now. So, right, that's what I'm saying. So if I take my screen black for all of my interviews and all of my consultations that I'm doing, is that the best I could do? to still do what I need to do? You'd have to ground the computer. You'd have to get rid of the the electromagnetic waves coming out of the computer itself. Remember, every device that uses electricity makes an electromagnetic field. That electromagnetic field ruins that 100 hertz oscillation that's occurring on your inner mitochondrial membrane. How far does that go? Your mitochondria in every single cell Pay attention to that. So, so how example, far does that go out, though? Because I took the tri-field above my it out, MacBook. It goes out to infinity, my friend. And that's the point that people don't understand. There is it, it continues to radiate out, but even if how, you can't measure it with the tri field, well, that's because of the inverse square law. That's where the power density of the field becomes important. And not not all electromagnetic waves are going to hurt you based on the power density, but the ones that we're using for modern gadgets are extremely damaging. And that's the, the reason why I brought the point up to you about a half hour ago, that when we move, let me tell you something, the biggest mistake anyone could ever make that's getting ready to occur is when you go from 4G to 5G and you go buy that new iPhone, I'm officially telling you early, you're an idiot. I hear you. And it's as simple as that. Because until you understand what the power density ratings mean, and that was another book you can read. You want to read about that? Go read Martin Blank's book called Overpowered. When you read that, say that. Say his name again one more time, Jack. Martin Blank. Martin Blank. He's a PhD at a Columbia University. He wrote a book several years ago called Overpowered. If you want another PhD researcher that's done amazing work in this area, her name is Deborah Davis. She's also a PhD, and she works tirelessly to try to change the FCC law. Because she understands truly what it means. The, the, the key is, Evan, when you realize how the deck is stacked against you, it's one thing to know what you know the activists are doing, but you have to be an activist for your mitochondria. So let me try to explain this to you as, as, as really as best I can. My left arm right now is closer to my computer that I'm speaking to you on than my right arm is. The difference is that means the left side mitochondria are being more affected by our discussion than that on the other side. So that creates an imbalance in the body. That's not how it's supposed to be. See, everything in your cell is based on local geometry. Remember I said to you before that the environment creates the defect, there's no defect in you. Your genome only responds to the signals that it can decipher. That makes sense. So at the end of that study, they, that one we were talking about, it basically says without directly saying that they see the relationship between cell phone use and brain cancer. But in terms of this word glucose, basically if you could kind of summarize that for us, when you're using the phone, does that mean you're driving up glucose, you're elevating glucose, yes. therefore insulin levels? Yeah, well, you know, here's the interesting part, and this is where the food gurus are going to have a big problem. 
Will non-native EMF raise your blood, gl blood glucose without even screwing with insulin? The answer is yes. And the reason why is because it's uncoupling those pathways that control insulin release. And that's, that's what makes these uh, studies really concerning to people like me. And the reason why glucose is upregulated, because glucose is the key substrate for the TCA cycle. And if you look at a TCA cycle, if you took one mole of glucose and one mole of palm, palm, palmitic acid, which is a fatty acid, one mole of palmitic acid makes 147 ATP. One mole of glucose makes 36 ATP. So this is third grade math. What's more energy efficient? Well, utilizing fat. Well, you can't do that when you put a cell phone up to the side of your brain. The only thing you can do is use that 36 ATP. So what does that mean? You have to raise glucose even higher to try to get that two and a half times of energy that's happening. And you're exhausted. Correct. And that's the reason why you have all these kids dropping dead of heart attacks in their, in their high schools now where they need defibrillators. And that's the reason why we've got people that go up on airplanes constantly get DVTs and why, you know, they go crazy in the flight. Uh, or why we've got people like Adam Lanza, who was the Newtown shooter. Remember what his mother said before uh, the kid died, that he constantly watched and used his Xbox. Go go take a, a trimeter and go next to an Xbox and tell me what you find. Uh, I, yeah, I, I don't have one, but I, maybe I can find one. I measured 9 milligauss, just FYI, I measured 9 milligauss off my laptop. So now I try to use an external laptop well, and if you if you want to be shocked go go read martin blank's book and see what he says about that the nine milligauss well i could oh, feel it my fingers i started to my hands started to like cripple i felt like an old man well that's exactly what happens because you're aging faster and the reason you're aging fast is because your heteroplasmy rate in those tissues are going through the roof that's doug wallace 101 my friend wow it's, it's a trip well i know i gotta let you go i've uh exceeded the time here if you had two or three things that people should do right now, if they haven't done already, what would those th what would those three be? You've already said like a hundred, but just well, so people are I, the number one thing that I always tell people is that education about things that you don't know that other people do know about is important. So I would tell you to go buy you know three new books and learn. If you heard anything in this hour and a half that you're interested in, go read those books, buy those books. And ask questions. Ask questions of people who you know know about these things so they can direct you to you know more detailed things. Because invariably, when you learn new things, it's going to open your mind to other new things. And you're going to make connections to other things. And um, you know, one thing we didn't talk about you know, on this podcast is water. I would tell people, go out and buy Gerald Pollack's book called The Fourth Phase of Water. Uh, when it comes to light, I want you to buy... Roland Van Wick's book. You spell it R-O-E-L-A-N-D, Van, V-A-N, Wick, W-I-J-K. It's called Light Sculpting Life. And maybe the, the third book that you guys get is probably Going Somewhere by Andrew Marino. Um, you read these books, and then there's others. There's plenty of others. You may gravitate over to my forum and say, hey, look, I read this. I found this interesting. I mean, if you go to my forum, there's so much data there. It's ridiculous. You can just put a search in uh, and put my name. Like if you wanted to find out, for example, put RF, put Jack Cruz RF, and you'll pu pull up a ton of shit. Yep. Um, it's just unbelievable how much 
we don't know and we take for granted. And um, I, I will just tell you, I'm pretty malignant about accepting half-truths. And for me, the way this podcast started off, and you asked me this question, and I'm going to give you the answer. I am not a food guru. I am not an exercise guru because those are half-truths. I only want to teach people how everything works. And when you understand all the bits and pieces that we're talking about, then you can really begin to build an environment around your own mitochondria that allows you to approach optimized. Yeah. And that's the key. And do, do I believe that you can still do that even in a world that's blue lit and microwaved? I believe you can. And that's the key. And, and I'm, I'm a hopeless optimist. I'm not a pessimist. The only, the only people I'm a pessimist for are the people that are locked in the cage of their current beliefs. For sure. I understand. Jack, well, thanks for your time. I told you 45 minutes, but you know that we've never been successful at that time frame. So I appreciate you giving us double your time today. We'll send people back to your website, jackcruz.com. They can check it out. A fun place to a fun place to be. We didn't even get time to talk about the Quantlet, Jack. So people will just have to go check that out. I don't fully yeah, that's, understand That's okay. It. The, the Quantlet right now for, for what we talked about is not important. I think it's much more important for people to understand the basic science. Once they understand the basic science, the Quantlet is something I think that people can come to the forum and ask questions and talk to people. Uh, I'm really more about getting the information out so that people understand that light, water, and magnetism are the key to your life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that's topic whiplash, but it's a it's a cool looking device. You did really good with that. Well, it'll be out in four weeks, so we'll see how it goes. Cool. Well, thanks for your time, Jack. You take good care. All right, take care. Okay, man. Bye bye. Well, what'd you think of that? How fun was that? Jack has been instrumental in helping me figure out the big picture. You know, we get so caught up in our tech toys and we get so caught up in our way of life that we don't realize that even in my grandparents' time, none of these things existed. I mean, I've talked with my grandpa about his grandfather. Airplanes weren't even around then. I mean, he would even be mind blown at the idea that there's planes, thousands of them overhead right at this very second. So I think what happens is you begin to tune things out, right? Just like if you live near a busy highway, maybe you stop hearing it or you're so used to that sound until somebody comes over and they say, man, what is that loud road noise over there? Oh, that's the highway. And you kind of forget about these things. So when you're surrounded by all of these tech toys all the time, you forget that they exist. You forget that they're there. You forget that they emit types of radiation that you're unable to see with the naked eye. Go check out the show notes if you'd like back at notjustpaleo.com. You'll go to my search bar at the bottom. You'll type in Cruise, and you can find all the other episodes. This is about his fourth or fifth appearance on here. So if you've been uh, in the dark about his work, now's the time to go check him out, and you can listen to several hours of other interviews that we did. I think the first one we did was so much fun. It was episode 37 of this podcast, which was about three and a half years ago. Go check it out. And as always, this is something that I like to talk about. This is something that really moves the needle for people. I just got off the phone with a client. She knows who she is, and she's working two jobs and being a mom and being busy, and she's going to bed too late, and she's on her computer all night right before she goes to bed. Now, she is using Flux, which is excellent. That's a good choice. 
and the blue blockers. However, your skin receptors are still able to detect light. So you really want to be covered up, long sleeve, etc. Cover up that skin and protect your circadian rhythm because the secret to fat loss is not more exercise or more fat or less carbs. The secret is optimizing your light environment. And I myself, I've never had weight issues except wanting to gain weight back when I was a bodybuilder. But beyond that, weight is just the physical manifestation of an impaired light cycle. So fix that and I promise you're going to be healthier and happier. And spread the word. Spread this podcast. And if you're looking to get help from a functional medicine practitioner like myself who actually doesn't just talk about the lab testing but talks about wireless technology, EMF, and how to optimize your environment for that and you're losing weight by optimizing those things, reach out. Visit my website, notjustpaleo.com and click the book now button. You can schedule a 15-minute free call with myself. Let me know what's going on with you. Tell me your symptoms. We'll see if we're a good fit for each other and if I can help you out. All right, take care. We'll talk next week. Bye-bye. He acts like it's all good, yeah, like everything's cool. Kiss her girl the night and never leaves her. She doesn't have a clue that he's terrible rules. Why I'm in the tire, got to watch out, girl. Don't want to see her by her eyes out, girl. Cause I've been watching, you've been hurting. Let me be the one that loves you better.